Dad would have wrestled the steering wheel away from my mom, and he would have been pleading with her, something along the lines of, please, Carolyn, please just stop, please stop. That was like his famous catchphrase. Heard round the house more than anything, and my mom, my mom would have slid over to the passenger seat as far away from him as possible, either staring straight at him or pointedly staring out the passenger side window. Most of the time she wouldn't say anything, and if she did speak, it was something along the lines of, I hate you, I hope you die. And my dad, my dad would just repeat that same catchphrase, please, Carolyn, don't say that, please stop, just stop, please. But he'd add in those three words that were supposed to make everything okay. I love you. And her, well, I hate you. Now, you might say that mom and dad had this unhealthy relationship, and hell, you might be right, but let me ask you this. If you were a three- or four-year-old child and had no frame of reference other than what was presented to you by your parents, would you think it was unhealthy? Would you think there was anything wrong at all? And my parents, they didn't try to hide their fights. They didn't go behind closed doors. They didn't wait until we were asleep. Oh, hell no, they did it right out in the open. And you know, I don't know how Denise and I initially coped with those arguments. I do remember we got to the point where we acted like they weren't even going on. We'd be playing in the floor, and whatever we were playing with became the most important objects on the planet. Denise and I hunkered over those toys, acting like nothing was going on. Mom sitting on the couch screaming, I hate you, I hope you die. Dad in a chair across from her saying, Carolyn, please don't say that. And she, I do. I wish I'd never married you. One of these days, I'm just going to leave and never come back. You don't mean that. What do you want me to do? I don't understand what you want me to do, is what my father would say. And Denise and me, concentrating on those damn toys. I mean, we really concentrated on those friggin' toys. They were probably, like I said, probably the most interesting toys on the planet. We'd hear the argument, but you know what? It was best to ignore it. Hell, we didn't even make eye contact with each other because we were scared it might be noticed by the parents. Better that dad put up with that bullshit than me and her get dragged into the middle of their argument. And mom, again, I do mean it. It's like she was possessed by this alien, just logical creature like Spock from Star Trek. I wish I'd never married you. And my dad, in response, what would he do? He'd use his best head doctor voice. Please, Carolyn, not in front of the children. Fuck. All of a sudden when he said that, it always looked like me and Denise were about to be dragged right into the middle of this argument. But mom, gotta say this for her, she would rarely take that bait. More often than not, my dad making a remark like that would only result in my mom turning into this mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. You think she yelled before? Oh shit, no. This was the stuff warning sirens were made out of. And it would quickly quickly stop being just words. If something was within her reach, it would get thrown. Please, Carolyn, not in front of the children. Ah! Quick, is she drinking something? There goes that damn glass at his head. Is that an ashtray by her side? You better damn well duck. And me and Denise, insistent about not paying attention to any of that bullshit. Very important for us not to acknowledge any of it. And you know, I'm not sure why that was so important to me and Denise. I guess we thought if we ignored it, if we didn't see it, then maybe in some weird world somewhere, it didn't really take place. It wouldn't affect us and we wouldn't be involved. 
Of course, you know, it was his coping mechanism. It was the only tool she and I had in order to cope with what our parents were doing in our presence. Denise and me, well, we usually didn't even know what was thrown until the argument was over. Dad would either be cleaning up the glass so we'd see what it was, or Mom and Dad would adjourn to the bedroom for this hot, wet, makeup monkey sex. Then, and only then, was it safe to look around and see what kind of shit had been broken up during their fight. Now, I do remember a lot of shit being thrown, but not much stuff getting broken. So Dad must have been a pretty good catch. And I guess he had to be negative reinforcement bullshit and all that. There was this one time she threw an ashtray and it caught him right above the eye. He had to go to the emergency room for stitches on that one. I don't remember him really being hit after that, so I guess I'm betting that he learned to catch pretty quick. I also suspect he learned to move anything dangerous out of her reach prior to getting engaged in an argument with her. I would say Dad learned how to duck pretty well, but my dad is a big man, and big men don't duck. Welcome to this episode of the Angler Fish Podcast, where we visit the darkest corners of our online lives. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original Internet Godfather. How did I get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States Most Wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community, Shadow Crew. Shadow Crew was a precursor to today's Darknet and Darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. This first season of the Anglerfish podcast tells of my rise and fall as the world's first internet godfather. It's a fascinating story. You'll learn how cybercriminals think, how modern cybercrime came into being, and why it's so successful and hard to stop, and how I was able to turn from a life of crime to one of using the knowledge I acquired as a criminal to help protect others against the type of person I used to be. Denise and I have never really discussed this before, and I'm very appreciative that she's came in and she's willing to sit down and talk with not only me, but with you guys about the type of mom and the type of life we had growing up. You know, Denise, I don't know if I've ever told you or not, but my earliest memory, I've got two, but the first memory that I have of my mom, we were at Fort Lewis, Washington on base there. And you and I were in the back seat of this white Oldsmobile that we used to own. We owned a four-door Oldsmobile, like that car from the Evil Dead that Bruce Campbell drives. We were in that, and you and I were in the back seat, and we were probably, you know, doing the don't touch me, don't touch me type stuff. And mom and dad were up front arguing. Of course, you know, when I say arguing, basically it was mom screaming and dad looking at mom saying, well, Carolyn, what do you want? What is it, Carolyn? What's wrong? What can I do? My memory has it as raining. So I remember mom lunges across the car, grabs the steering wheel from dad. She yells, are you ready to die, you son of a bitch? and tries to steer us into oncoming traffic. I've got that as a first memory. And the other first memory that I have was 
we were in Airport Gardens in Hazard, Kentucky, and I remember my mom, Carolyn, had a woman tied up to a tree in the front yard, and she was beating this woman, and the woman was bloody and crying and begging, and the neighbors were outside watching it, and of course I was there, and I think you were there too, and I remember that as the woman had slept with my mom's sister's husband, Nita. Was that when she was married to that guy from Breathitt County? That was not. That was Gary Paul Baker was who she was married to at that point. And Gary Paul had just beaten the hell out of Anita. And, of course, Mom took offense to that and went up there with a gun to try to kill him. But this was another woman entirely and another man, I think. Was this pre-Fort Knox? This was before we went to Fort Knox. Yeah, this would have been when we were uh, very young, I guess before we moved to, uh, to West Germany at the time. So this would have been in the 70s. I guess I would have maybe been six, you five, something like that. I remember being in the car, but I thought it was night. And I don't remember exactly what happened. I just remember feeling afraid. Dad got her away from the steering wheel. And I remember because, you know, that was his catchphrase at that point. And it was, what can I do? What can I do, Carolyn? That was always what he was saying. What can I do? What do you want? And she would always respond with, just for you to die. <laughs> so obviously those are my first memories. What are your first memories of, of your mom, Carolyn? Well, I remember something being very wrong. I don't remember exactly what it was. I don't remember the woman in the tree. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> probably a good thing. <laughs> One of my earliest memories was actually when we were in Germany. We had apparently just moved there. And so we lived in an apartment and I can remember mom like she had a pantyhose over her head and just sheer terror. I thought we were playing and then it turned very wrong somehow. I just remember sheer terror of her at that point. Well, do you remember the exorcism and the seance in, in, in Germany? Oh, God. So for those who don't know, I've spoken about it a couple of times, but my dad was in the military. He was a captain, a helicopter pilot in the Army. We had been transferred to West Germany. We lived in this place called Swabish Hall. Now, my mom, if you've not gotten the point yet, my mom had some difficulties mentally. So I like to say she was bug fuck crazy. But what happened while we were in Germany, she gets it in her head that our apartment was possessed. And she gets it so much in her head that she goes to talk to a priest. She goes to the library to start to pull up records. She convinces herself that the apartment complex was built on the same spot that a Nazi concentration camp train used to run through. And this train had stopped there at one point, and these two people had gotten off running for it, and they had been shot while running on the same grounds this apartment complex was built. Me and Denise, I mean, we're like four and five at this point, so we don't know any better. But she's going crazy over this, man. So she convinces us as kids that the apartment's haunted. Not only that, but she goes and gets all of the neighbors in the apartment complex that would actually sit down and do it with her to have a seance. She brings a priest in to exercise the apartment. <laughs> now, so you do remember some of that. I totally remember that. I remember the frenzy of it all. Looking back on it, she really enjoyed the attention from it, I think. But she convinced herself, and she's very charismatic, so she convinced everybody else. 
as well. And so it was more something else to be afraid of. Oh, yeah. To her, it was there's an evil entity in the apartment doing things. She convinced me that this one hall that we had in the apartment was haunted, and I was scared to walk through the hall because I, I started to see stuff. You know, I started to see these things in the shadows. When you're five, you do that, <laughs> you know? So, but I, I think you said it just a second ago. She liked the attention. Yeah, she did. For me, mom was one of these people that, for whatever reason, she had to always test to see how much you loved her. If she could continue to do this and you would still be there, yeah. could she miss, how much could she abuse you and you would still come back to her? Right. And if she felt that she went over the line, which she always went over the line. Not our mom, over the line? Yeah, it was, I'll make it up to you by, I'll get you a present. Let me get you something. Or stealing something if you didn't have the money. So yeah. there's always something like that. <laughs> yeah, but my earliest memory of her would just be that sheer terror. And I can't remember what it was she did. Well, you were so young. I mean, you just have the emotions from that. You don't really have the memory from that anymore. I guess that's one of the things that I was a little bit older, so I have a lot of those memories. So, you know, we came back from West Germany and we moved to Fort Knox, Kentucky. You know, I guess mom was cheating on dad throughout the entire marriage. But when I first started to notice it was when we moved to Fort Knox. Remember this one guy, his name was Scott Rose. Scott Rose was this guy's name. You know, I remember his name too. Isn't that funny that we remember his name? We remember his name, Scott Rose. And what happened was is that mom started to date this guy Surely she had been screwing around on dad long before that, but she ends up bringing this guy home to my father, to dad. I don't know if you remember this or not, but she brings Scott Rose to the house, sits dad down. So it's me, you, dad, Scott Rose, and mom sitting in the living room. Dad is crying like a baby, begging her not to do it. Mom is sitting there saying, I love him. I'm leaving you. I'm taking the kids with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she proceeds to do that as dad is crying his eyes out. So we moved from Fort Knox to a hotel in Hazard, Kentucky. So all four of us are living in this little rinky-dink hotel room in Hazard, Kentucky. And every time they have sex, which is frequently, you and I have to leave the hotel room and walk outside down the street for a while until they're through. And if they're in a car, there was a couple instances where they were in the car and they got horny. This one that we were in Jackson, Kentucky, they pull off to the side of the road, on the side of the road, tell us to get out, walk down the road a while, and they'll come and get us. So as they, as they got freaky, and of course, Scott was an alcoholic. He was a horrible drinker, but mama convinced herself she loved him. That lasted, what, three, four months, something like that. <laughs> until she comes back to dad. <laughs> I guess I've got more of these memories than you do. And, you know, there was one point that dad got tired of it. The one was he filed for divorce. We were back in Hazard, Kentucky at that point. So, you know, he was a helicopter pilot. The Army starts to downsize. He drops out of the military and goes into coal mining. 
So well, didn't he not get promoted because she raised somebody? That is the other part of it. He was a captain. He was looking for a promotion to a major, and he didn't get the promotion. And to this day, no one will tell me why that didn't happen. But of course, it was because mom was known as the nut on the base, and maybe because she was sleeping with his fellow officers. Because she was like that. When he drops out of the Army and we've moved back to Hazard, Kentucky, he's working the night shift at the coal company. She's partying every single night, going out to these clubs, whatever men she can find. He knows about it, but he's just begging her to stop. That was Dad, right? He was like, you know, just what can I do? What can I do? What do you want? And it was always, not you. I want you to die. <laughs> so, you know, that was, that was it. But he files for divorce, right? And uh, at that point... That lasted about six months, and then we end up, so, you know, we were at, in Airport Gardens, and what it was is there was the upstairs where my grandfather, grandmother, two cousins, Sean and Ronnie, lived upstairs. You and Mom move upstairs there, and me and Dad are downstairs, and because Paul, our grandfather, had made the downstairs into apartment units. So me and dad were downstairs in an apartment unit and, you know, the never the twain should meet, you know, we sh- right. you got to stay inside. You can't go out, you know, blah, blah, blah. We had been down there a few weeks and I was asleep and dad was sleeping on the couch and something caused me to wake up and I walk into the living room where dad's asleep on the couch and mom climbed through a window at night with a butcher knife. And she has a butcher knife held to dad's throat, threatening to kill him. And he is begging her not to. And this is mom to a T here. She lets him go. And she realizes that, as you said a minute ago, she has went too far. Right? So she has done something too much all of a sudden. So she has to fix it. And this is how she fixes it. She goes to the bathroom, gets a safety razor, and acts like she's trying to cut her wrist. So she scrapes her wrist up a little bit, starts screaming. It's not even bleeding. She starts screaming, and Dad comes to the rescue. And the entire thing's forgotten at that point because she's all of a sudden transitioned it from being trying to kill Dad to it being, oh, I'm trying to hurt myself. I'm so sorry. Help me, help me. So, <laughs> Oh, God. I remember some of the men and being there. She would take us with her sometimes. She'd either leave us in the car or sometimes she'd let us stay in the living room and she went to the bedroom. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't understand. I remember trying to be good so that mom wasn't mad. Well, you always had to watch what you were doing, right? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Always, you never knew how the wind was blowing on a certain day. That's true. And, you know, you talk about our grandparents and... That was a whole other ball of wax right there because how dysfunctional and just absolutely insane that was. And for those who don't know, so what happens is, is that my mom finally, I was maybe nine or 10, Denise, a year younger. She finally leaves my dad. We were in Panama City, Florida. And my recollection, and Denise's is a little different on that, but my recollection is that my great-grandfather had died We were supposed to be going up for the funeral, supposed to be going up there for two days and then coming right back. (laughs) We'll be back in two days. And that never happened. And she had that girl, Yolanda. She used her car and told Yolanda the same thing. We're just going up there for a little while. Right. And we'll be right back. And of course, Yolanda was young and 
very naive. And so, of course, I was too. I packed for two days. Of course. Yeah. Only had a couple pair of underwear. Right. Right. Two pairs of underwear. We go up there and we never come back. And of course, mom's out partying all the time. Days at a time. And of course, the grandparents, Paul Campbell and Alverna, they don't want us there. And they're crazy. And when I say they're crazy, Paul Campbell used to chase people around the house, including the kids, with a butcher knife or a rifle. A chain, a rope, a piece of hose. You would have to watch out at all times. You played the television. If the television was on past 10 o'clock at night and it had any volume at all because he slept in the bedroom next to the living room, which did not have a door on it. So you could have the TV on, but you could not have the volume up. So you'd watch the pictures and kind of pretend what they were saying. If he heard anything coming out of the TV, or if he even thought he heard something, he would get up, go to the breaker box, throw the breaker. And baths, we were allowed to take, what, a bath a week and two inches of water. Right. And if it was any higher than two inches, that was our ass at that point. Yeah. And even at that, I mean, when we were there after mom left dad, I remember being in that basement and having a mattress to sleep on. They were infested with roaches, so you'd, you'd had a mattress on the floor, and that's where you had to sleep for a while. We had no soap. Right. We had really very little clothes. I mean, two pairs of panties, and you weren't allowed to wash them. Or you'd have to wash them by hand. There was that, you know. I remember going over to Pizza Hut and stealing the soap from Pizza Hut so I could bring it back and wash my underwear in the sink with the soap. You know, but I had to be careful because... If he knew I was doing that, I was wasting water, and that would set him off. And if you set him off, his goal was to kill you. And it was. I mean, we had that round table in the kitchen upstairs in their house, and there were times when he would get the butcher knife on you, and you'd do the little dance around the table <laughs> until he got tired. And then he would finally sit down, and he would, he would look at you and say, don't let me catch you, I'll kill you. <laughs> or he'd get really upset and then he'd go looking for his gun and that's time for you to leave yeah yeah so you'd leave for a while and come back in a few hours but i saying to us your parents are sorrier than well shit and we should not have to feed you and, and they didn't want to feed us no and when we finally moved in the apartment downstairs we weren't allowed to go up there to eat they didn't want us up there no so that that became the issue and i want to be fair about that it wasn't so a lot of the problem we were in Panama City, Florida. Mom would work long enough. She got a job as she was an LPN. So she got a job at a nursing home. Dad, the only job he could get was working as a clerk at 7-Eleven. He was making, a, I don't know if you remember this, but he was making $140 a week was what he was making. And he was working his ass off to do that. Mom got a job as a nurse at the nursing home there, worked for two weeks until she was sure that my dad was working. And then she started partying because there was an old boyfriend that lived in Destin, 30 miles down the road. So she would go and party with him. Not only that, but she started to sleep with dad's managers at work. So the 7-Eleven managers, she started to sleep with them. And we were going broke. Sometimes they'd turn the power off. Most of the time they'd turn the water off because we wouldn't have money to pay the water bill. And we would have to wait until it rained at night. And we'd get out there with pots and pans and collect rainwater so that we could rinse off, flush the commode. They got to the point. Well, I remember her working, but what I remember is that 
there are always problems with the medicine cart. There was always pills missing, yes. <laughs> there were always pills missing out of the medicine cart. They were accusing her of taking those things, and she didn't do that. It was someone else that did that. Of course, but now she did take this whole side of beef. I do. Actually, I have fond memories of that. You know, I was like, that was good eating. We woke up one morning, and Dad and Mom were coming home, and they get this entire side of beef out, this whole ribeye side. Yeah, it's a ribeye. That was in the refrigerator, and we could just go and cut off a slab of steak whenever we wanted it. And put it under the broiler. Put it under the broiler in the oven. We ate pretty well for a while, but I remember that Mom, I think she got fired over that one before she could quit. So she worked a few jobs, but she got fired over that one. Yeah, she kept getting fired. Yeah. That's what I remember. And partying all the time. Yeah, and so, Dad would try to bring like food home and stuff. He would. He would. He would. Uh, anything that was going out of date, instead of throwing it out at 7-Eleven, that's what we lived on. I mean, he would bring the food home. He tried. Since we were little, I can remember being like in first grade, and I went to what three or four four different first grades, different schools, but I can remember us walking home. And we had to fix our own dinner. Oh, yeah. We were in charge of that. You know, there was nobody there to cook for us. You we, remember the dirty dishes were so bad that you had to do them in the bathtub? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. I think that what happened with Carol Sue, that's mom. You know, we were going broken in Panama City. They had brought all this expensive furniture back from overseas, handmade furniture, clocks, uh, crystal, everything else. Dad had some Rolexes some nice watches and all that, and they, they were going broke. Dad, like I said, Dad was bringing home $140 a week. Mom was not really working. She was partying. So they started to sell the stuff they had in the house to try to make amends and pay the bills. And I think that Mom noticed that, and instead of trying to stick it out and do what she needed to do with getting a job and buckling down and paying the bills, that she decided to just bug out and leave Dad. And, you know, he told me that after she left, you know, he didn't have a car. Didn't have, he rode a bicycle to work. He had that dog that we had, Yogi. He couldn't even take care of the damn dog. He had a co-worker that had a place, and he ended up buying the dog a 50-pound bag of food and talked the co-worker into taking the dog for him because he couldn't pay for the dog. And he couldn't afford a house phone. There was a pay phone down the street he would use, and if somebody had to call him, he would wait by the pay phone to do that until he was finally able to, uh, to start making money and everything again. But that was our mom, man. She was, she was something. And she's still around, right? <laughs> you know, she had talked to her friend, Yolanda, who was a young woman who worked as an aide in one of the nursing homes where she worked. And so she had been very sheltered and lived home with her parents and was like 29 or something like that. And so she would take her with her partying. She had Yolanda take you and I to the library because we love to go to the library. And so she's like, Yolanda's going to take you all to the library. And I, I thought that was kind of odd. <laughs> Our needs were never the center of attention. You know, somebody's going to take us to the library? Like, really? And, and we were such nerds that that was like, yeah, we love the library. That's fabulous. And so she took us to the library and Actually, at the library, I was like, you know, something's wrong. Something's wrong. This has got to be bad. And so I told you that at the library. I was like, yeah. we got to go. Something's up and something's going bad. And so Yolanda didn't want to take us from the library and bring us back. 
but we were insistent. And so she brought us home and dropped us off. And when we got out of the car, when we pulled up, the hood was up on that car. And I was like, why is the hood up on the car? So we walk in, mom is sitting on the sofa in the living room with her legs crossed, acting all chill. I was like, what's wrong? What's up? Where's dad? I don't know, she said. I look on the floor and I see like pieces of marble broken off. The TV is pulled out from the wall. And I was like, what, what is this? Come to find out after she had had Yolanda take us to the library, she had pulled the spark plugs out of the car. That's why the hood was up. And so she had disconnected the cable from the TV in the back. So dad pulled the TV out to figure out what was wrong with the TV. And as he's been over, over, we had these massive candlesticks that were probably almost the diameter on the base of a, like a pie plate or a salad plate. And she had picked this thing up, probably weighed eight, 10 pounds and had hit him over the head with it, with the intention of killing him. And so when he went to leave or tried to get away, of course he couldn't in the car, so he had ended up Jesus. walking, I forget how many miles, to the hospital. And he still has a piece of that marble like in his skull. Right. But of course, with us, her story when we'd gotten home was, I don't know where he is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why that's on the floor. And I was sure like, what where's the candlestick? I don't know. I don't know where that went. Thank you for listening to this episode of Anglerfish. I appreciate it. If you like it, please subscribe and drop me a line saying hello. Hello is always good. You can reach me direct at brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. That's Brett, B-R-E-T-T, Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P-H-I-S-H dot com. Please tell your friends about us. Rate and review the Anglerfish podcast wherever you can. In the next few weeks, we'll be launching Season 2 of Anglerfish, which will examine the darkest corners of our online lives and what you need to do to remain safe. Please email me questions, comments, concerns, personal stories, and any topics you might like to hear discussed. That's brettjohnson at anglerfish.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Brett Johnson. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. 
After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 